This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Come on for picture. First positions, everyone. Yo, go. And action. Hello and welcome to episode 331 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films to TV to commercials to documentaries and everything in between how to get them made how to make them and how to try not to F them up in our very very humble opinion I am Giles Alderson and we are back that's right this is part two of our business of film explained with my two wonderful esteemed hosts joining me it is Phil Hawkins hello And Stephen Follows. Hello. Well, hello there. (laughs) On this week's episode, we're going to talk about how to become a filmmaker, how we got our first films made, and I imagine that Stephen's going to quiz myself and Phil because he's going to come up with loads of facts we're not going to know the answer to. Things like, what is the average first-time director's age? What percentage of directors do other roles on a film set? All these things might get answered because, as you know, if you did listen to the first part in this series, you'll know it's a little bit loose, but we have amazing facts for you. If you haven't listened to that first episode, The Business of Film Explained, part one, then do go listen to it after you've listened to this. It went down really well. It did very well. Because we discussed the percentage of writers, directors and producers who make more than one feature and does failure exist? So let me introduce all our hosts for you today, just in case you don't know who we are. Uh, Phil Hawkins, he's a writer uh, and director. Um, He also produces, but he directed The Butterfly Tattoo, Being Sold, The Last Showing, Four Warriors, uh, Star Wars Origins, his fantastic fan film, um, and his latest feature film, Universals and Skies, Prancer, A Christmas Tale. Phil Hawkins, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, thank you. Sounds strange talking about Christmas movies. In, uh, <laughs> I know. And obviously, just like all sequels, all the greatest sequels ever made, as in, you know, Empire Strikes Back, and I'm going there, mm. The Last Jedi, this one will be better. Mm. This is part two, but this one will be better than the last episode. Yes. Yeah, we do sequels well. <laughs> we do sequels well. Also joining us as our host today is the fantastic Stephen Follows. Hello. Uh, he is an established data researcher in the film industry whose work has been featured in uh, the New York Times, the Times, and many more publications. He runs the fabulous website stephenfollows.com where you can find so much information 
on filmmaking facts and figures. He's also taught at major film schools and his screenwriting has won Virgin Media Shorts, the Reed Film Competition, IVCA Awards and he's been nominated for the British Independent Film Awards and long-listed for a BAFTA. And Stephen has also produced over 100 short films and two features, Baseline and The Grind. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm all right. That makes me sound like I'm 90. Um. <laughs> That's the idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Giles Alderson. I'm a director. I've made Wolves of War, Arthur and Merlin, The Dare, and Great. last year's The the Stranger in Our Bed um, and I've produced A Serial Killer's Guide to Life Followers Repeat and recently Three Day Millionaire which is on Netflix and it's out in the USA and Canada now as well go support indie film Phil's Films my films Stephen's Films and all our other hosts as well speaking of which myself and Dom Lemoire tomorrow afternoon that's Wednesday, March the 22nd. We are on the panel uh, of the Triple Exposure. It's their launch. Basically, it's a one-stop shop on productions to let you, the creators, do what you're good at, which is creating fantastic content. Uh, I just read that. Uh, <laughs> so from 12 o'clock uh, in London tomorrow, there is a big networking session, Q&As with Farah Abush Wesher, um, who's a BAFTA-nominated producer. There'll be myself and Dom doing the panel, uh, and then there's a big Q&A and a chance to mingle and network at the end as well. So do come and join us. Links to all those things I've just mentioned are in the show notes. And well... Well done the Netflix, man. That's great. I'm really excited to see Thank it you. again on Netflix. And I think it's going to do very well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, theatrical to Netflix, you're basically disproving all of uh, Stephen's website. <laughs> not that I read Stephen's <laughs> website because I'm not allowed to for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you're being a bit of an awkward outlier, Giles. If you yeah, could, yeah. Uh, yes, I am. Sort that out. That would, I'd appreciate that. I think it's one of those, you know, like five, ten years ago, it was like everyone had, it was theatrical. We want theatrical release. And now it's like everyone wants Netflix. And we were lucky enough to get both, I suppose. But we have fought for that. It wasn't like it just came easy. We made sure that we um, really worked hard with our distributors and sales team to push the theatrical release to make sure that happened. And then also to for Netflix to work out as well. So over the moon. Look, yeah, congratulations. I mean, it makes a huge difference to you as a, as a director as well. I was talking a few weeks ago. I caught up with an old friend who is a director and has had a film on Netflix uh, I won't say any more about specifically who they are so that I can share more of their their, their experience. Um, and they had a very positive mm. experience. But one of the things they said was uh, their film was going to go on other platforms and eventually Netflix got it as an exclusive. And they were like, great, can we have a theatrical as well? Netflix said no. And they went, well, no, 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 we'll do all the work. And Netflix said no. And it went on Netflix. It did very well on Netflix. But this director described the anticlimactic nature of your film being released on Netflix as being sort of like mm. uploaded to Dropbox. And it'd been such a mm. tortuous, painful <laughs> journey, like all films are. Like it doesn't have to be a bad journey for it to be painful and long and and then finally to achieve success and then it to do well and to sort of happen, I don't know, on Twitter. Like it just, it lacked that thing that we're used to, the narrative catharsis that directors are used to, which is ta-da, even if it is just mm. a one screen and you can only be in one at any one moment. And he just said it was really hard to deal with. And I think that might be something new in the director's toolbox of things to expect. One of them will be, you. it'll go out with a whimper rather than a bang, even if that's success. So, I don't know, something new for directors to have to adapt to. That's fascinating. Phil, how did you feel with your film you know, it was it was on Sky. It was a splash on Sky, but as Stephen said, there it wasn't. He didn't have that theatrical moment. That it was just that moment. Yeah, it was. Did it I feel mean, different? It, it 
It was fun because I there was a few like sort of in inverted commas theatrical experiences because you know Sky did show it across the country for Sky members, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I, I went to a few screenings, private screening, crew screenings, things like that, and so it was nice to see it with an audience because I hadn't actually hadn't actually watched it with an audience throughout the whole post. Nice. Um, but the funny thing is, it's, it's still really lovely getting a package in the post and you cut it open it's got mm-hmm. like a soundtrack cd and a blu-ray and a dvd in it you're like oh it's real it exists <laughs> even though like i'm a director <laughs> dvd blu-ray snob like <laughs> but like it's it's nice to know it's physical and it's real because i've had a few things that you know been released on netflix one of it's being last showing and um that was through sony and it was on there for a while and then they just disappeared and everyone was like oh what where's your film gone i was like oh probably background mm. you know next halloween because it was kind of a horror movie and uh yes. nope but then it popped up on a random march at some point or something randomly and then was off again <laughs> so like no idea like what happens in that way so it's kind of that it's strange yeah it's not netflix isn't forever yeah. and as we know with HBO and the whole Discovery buyout and everything that's going on at the moment. Mm. You know, it's kind of your films go up there and then they don't write, they yeah. don't call, <laughs> they just leave yeah. the home. And then maybe you get a yeah. at Christmas or Halloween yeah. if it's a horror film, but yeah. that's all you it's, get nowadays. It's, it's terrible. It's a strange one. You birth these things. Yeah. You brought them into the world. Yeah. That said, it's still great and it's a brilliant for the film and a crap ton of people are going to watch it. More people will watch it than ever would have done, you know. Yeah. More people have probably seen Three Day Millionaire yeah. than had during that whole cinema run and all the press we did and yeah. all the posts. Isn't that amazing? Well, I'll go you one further. Because of their algorithmic nature, mm. there are people out there who you made your film for. Yes. Intentionally or unintentionally, as in some people you had in mind, some types of people you had in mind, and some other people that actually, for whatever their viewing history overlaps that, that Netflix has pushed this, it's gone big on their screen, and they've gone, oh my God, mm. look at that. And then they've watched it. And like, you can't see any of that. You can't measure any of that, but you can be damn sure they'll do that because it's in Netflix's interest. So there are people mm. out there who, for your, for whom your movie was a big release and they were excited because they were targeted and they loved it. You just can't prove that. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's, that's what's interesting is you can't, you can't put anything on it. You can't come out. That's what's amazing about the Q and A tour, the cinema run is we could speak to the audience afterwards and fill in yours as well. You know, Prance for a Christmas tale. You could get the vibe of the audience. You could see that live when it's on Netflix. It's, it's kind of there. It's, yeah, it's, so. it's a thing. And, and also it's free now. Which is also a worry, you know what I mean? Because you still want people to, you need to make money. That's the whole point of making films as well. Of course, it getting out there in the world and making a difference and all that. But you've got to pay your investors back. That's what's important to me. And now next time you see your auntie at whatever family gathering and they're like, so what, what, you're a filmmaker. Oh, what do you make? What do you do? But movies on Netflix. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Instant um, validation. I, uh, Yes. I, d- I did. I did want to pick you up on one point Weird. now because this is the business yes. of film uh, section. Uh, w- yes. When you said you have to pay your f- uh, investors back, unfortunately, that comes with an asterisk in the film industry, which is you either have to pay them back or find new investors for the next <laughs> film. And that sadly, is correct. Stephen, I think but. that's the way films work. No, I'm not to say that they won't be paid back, but that's not to say they will or won't. But that's how mm. fil- more films are made through new investors than repeat investors. And it could be because the novelty of investing in a film, even if you've had the return, is less so the second time round, or people's life's experience changes. But like, if you fail to make money in your film, you still get to make films. And so it is interesting how the film industry is all pointed at profit and investors return, but not really, because there isn't this like credit history. Yeah. And also the waterfall of the way 
the way the money works is like you know you if you sat around waiting to count count your you know pennies at the end of a film at the end of its life cycle you'd never make another film or you make another film in like 10 years so um mm-hmm. so yeah so you've got to seek mm-hmm. out those investors um or even just the thing about having it on netflix you go well in in the public eye in the investors eye then the film is successful i'm using air quotes i realized i'm on a podcast mm-hmm. but you know um <laughs> yes and it, and it just validates but it's it. true it's, it's the stamp like it's the stamp of approval it does and that is fascinating because i remember even being on set and some of the actors were saying this film would be perfect for netflix mm. and it's right it would be but there's that's why we wanted to do the release first rather than go straight onto netflix because at least that way we can make some money back you know through the cinema release and through the you know the streaming services before netflix because like say once it's on netflix people go oh it's free i'm not going to go buy it elsewhere the good thing about our deal is that it's not going to be on there for too long it means that we can still then go back to the other platforms we've got other countries we're releasing in um but you know it it, it's an amazing thing for the filmmaker it looks great yeah but yeah, it's it is it is that whole okay. How do you work it out with the investor? And of course, we got paid by Netflix, uh, so it's a good deal. Yeah. But it's it comes with lots of caveats as a filmmaker, and you've got to make that choice. Um, it is fascinating. I love it. So, as Stephen said, this is the business of film explained. Um, <laughs> probably with an exclamation <laughs> mark at the end. And last uh, the last time we did this, like I said, we're going to do this monthly. That's the plan anyway. But because it's been awards season, it has been difficult to fit them all in. We had so many amazing guests, we couldn't not say yes. Um, so because of that, we want to do this as a, a fabulous uh, experiment to talk through questions from you, the listener, about what you want us to answer, especially having someone like Stephen join us for this, because we can go deep with the facts. So, boys, we did get a question. Uh, we've got quite a few, actually, but I think this one is the one we should tackle. Um, shall I read it out and then we can make a decision? Yeah, let's do it. Go for it. Okay, great. You both just nodded. Why did great we nod? Podcast. Again, podcast. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so this listener question is from Lucille Howe. And she asks, how did you break the duck and get your first film financed? It's a good question, but I wanted to tie that in with the whole question about, well, how do you become a director? You know, you know, how we got our first film is great. And we can talk about that. And we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but we're happy to dive into it. But I think what I think will make a really interesting topic is how do you become a director? How do you become a filmmaker and the facts and figures around that? What do we think? Sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a great idea. I'll tell you the first thing that you don't do, which is you don't wait for permission. Because yes. no one's going to give you permission or you can give yourself permission. They have the same outcome depending on how, whether you want to put yourself up or push others down. But I, I think in both cases, there isn't a place you can go to to get the proper amount of money you need to properly make your film. And there isn't a place where you go in as a, a, a keen wannabe and come out as a director with the badge and the gun. And like, you know, like mm-hmm. you're now able to practice. You, in both cases, how do you finance your film and how do you become a director? I think you just start doing it. And then it, you do it badly and it doesn't work. And then you do it a bit better and a bit better. And I don't know, Phil, did you have a moment when you sort of uh, were baptized and became a director or did it just sort of slowly happen over time? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the pearly gates of the BFI uh, opened for me and I, I walked in <laughs> and they gave me a tweed suit and a membership card. And They must uh, have been so delighted. They must have been, Phil, you're finally here. God, no. Yeah. I mean, who is this guy from <laughs> the State in Manchester? Get, get lost. Um, no, for me, it was like I always wanted to 
be a director so therefore therefore i am therefore i was whatever you want to say because i was i've been sure. making shorts you know since i was like 10 11 years old so and i was directing you know i think i think my first kind of proper feeling that i was a director was when i, I actually directed one of our year school plays um and directed like the whole year kind of production um and then yeah my name was on the program i was like wow that's that's a pretty big deal um, and then properly, probably the first commercial I directed where I, they, I had a check, an actual paper check with my name on it. <laughs> and wow. that was for directing. I was like, wow, I'd frame that if I didn't have to cash it and spend every single penny of it right now. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, in terms of feeling like a director, no, I just kind of did it, I suppose. Um, and mm. cracked on and tried to get better and was equally frustrated that then that was my film school you know was just making loads and loads and loads and loads of shorts that were terrible but hopefully everyone i made was slightly better than the last one um either technically or storytelling wise or whatever you know it was just trying to progress mm. yeah. it took me 10 years to feel like a director during that I mean, I suppose maybe I always felt like a director, but what I mean is until I made my first feature. Yeah. And it's that weird thing that that's just me. You're everyone's different and you've made a load of shorts and they've done what they've done. You're a music um, video director. You you make documentaries, whatever it is you make adverts. You're a director. As soon as you turn over on a camera, you're a director. There's no question about it for me. You don't need qualifications. You don't need to go to film school if that's what you want to do you can do it by just doing it and you can get better. But I just remember that 10 years was so painful and so difficult. I suppose I came from it from a different angle, being an actor. I was able to bring on some good people for my shorts. You know, James Friend, who's just won an Oscar um, for All Quiet on the Western Front. He was a DOP on my first official short as a director. You know, that was because he'd done a a feature that I was in so I just asked him but I, I don't know I, I always had that feeling I wanted to direct but I was too scared of it because I was trying to act you know it's like oh it'll get in the way and certainly 10 years ago that was the case you didn't do both now it's kind of yeah you can act you can direct you can produce you can write no one has an issue with it now but 10 years ago I felt like people did or maybe it was my own issue and uh, yeah I did everything like Phil I made shorts music videos documentaries terrible bar mitzvah videos whatever I could get my hands on <laughs> And I learned how to shoot. I learned how to hold a camera. I learned how to edit, which I think made me a, a better director than learning how to shoot. Even though, of course, that did too. But learning to edit made me realize when I'm on set what I needed and what I didn't. Because I've been in the edits so much, cutting together all these terrible, terrible videos <laughs> I made over this time. So for me, it's, yeah, it took me, took me a long time to feel like a director. And even now, it's still weird sometimes saying it. You know, I went to the opticians the other day and they literally went, oh, so what's your occupation? Film director. And it was so weird. They sort of had that look. Oh, yeah. you're a film director. And it was like, um, yeah, that's, oh God, that's weird. <laughs> I don't know how to why, did you, why do you say that rather than actor? Is it because they'll ask you what you've been in? and and Or because, like, what's the follow-up question? Well, I don't act anymore, but yes. But when I did, I was I was always quite embarrassed by saying it. It was really weird. And I'd done loads, you know, Coronation Street and done a load of films, Damned United, I Want Candy, etc., etc. A load of indies. But I always felt strange saying it. Mm. I had this weird, yeah, I'm an actor. And they go, oh, what have I seen you in? You go, mm, you probably haven't. Mm. And you just felt terrible. But the directing side for me is all, ah, I feel at home. You know, as soon as I turned over on my first short, I felt at home. It was like, oh, wow, 
this is something special. This is amazing. Um, and definitely coming from the acting side helps. What about you, Stephen? For that, obviously not director, but producing side as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult with producing. I think one of, because, you know, with, with acting, certainly, you're not technically acting in, in the crudest of senses until you're on set in some way or in rehearsals or whatever. Mm. So you, you do get hired and then do it in some way. It's not totally linear but it's still some linearity to it but with producing it's it's like as soon as you decide to start making it and even when you're failing to make it or haven't yet made the film you are producing Mm -hmm. and and it's the same with writing when you open up word and you start typing you're a writer you know or even when you're Mm -hmm. conceiving of ideas and characters like it's a vague spectrum of things rather than a hard moment where like you pass the bar exam and you are a lawyer before that you weren't or you get your doctorate or whatever in other fields and i think that's harder so i think it is some people become producers uh and i guess directors in their minds first and then in the the real world and other people it might be the other way around like you were saying it took you a while to think Mm -hmm. of it like that but i mean there is a lot when you look at the data there is a lot of overlap between directing and other jobs as well um because it's interesting to see that directing is it's not the sum total of all the jobs, but you've got to control all the departments. And so it, it, it is a bit of everything as well as it's being its own thing. Um, so I think, uh, well over like two thirds of directors had also got a screenwriting credit at some point. So whether they are see themselves as writers, as in like, that's my primary profession or whether it's just that they did so much on a script, they got a credit. It's hard to know. But then there's producing. Mm. Cast is quite a common thing, you know, um, although it's not necessarily in their own movies, but about a third of directors have also had a proper acting credit. I wonder what you thought the next role was. Like, what's the overlap of other key department roles? Well, Phil, what do you reckon? What, what would, where would, should directors come from, or at least other roles that would benefit the role of director? No, just so just to clarify, yeah, what the, just go through the first. Oh, sorry, two again. I forgot. We we have to do this as a quiz so that Phil can get the chance we to do, get points. Yeah, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> sorry. Okay, sorry. This is. I'm only here for the competition. I don't care about anything else. I just want <laughs> Which, to win considering something. your performance last week, suggests that you should probably have other reasons for coming because um, I think it was two <laughs> you know zero what? to Giles. It's but... got, like, guys, I, th- I, I I thought I did well, uh, and obviously I now remember oh. that I didn't. Okay, fine. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Um, oh, oh dear. Uh, yeah, you're talking to the wrong guy. I'm one of those people. That take science and statistics and twist them to fake news. So yes. I won last time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sure. To be fair, you, you did well last time. You did well. Coming second is good. Second out of two. <laughs> taking part that counts. So, so taking part. That, okay. So here's the question. So um, yeah. the what I was looking at this was a study of uh, this was all movies that were in US cinemas in the 1990s, 2000s, and 2010s. So like the last 30 years of I movies. I loved them. Um, Big movie yeah. fan of all that period. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was looking at when, when someone got a directing credit, had they also worked on a film over that period in other roles? And so the most yes. common were like writer direct. They'd also written something that was about th- two thirds, mm-hmm. three quarters. And, and then producing about half had produced a movie. Half the directors had produ- also mm-hmm. produced a movie. Um, about a third of the directors had also been in the cast of a movie as an actor of some kind. What was the next role? The, so the, the crew, crew role that was fourth mm. most common for directors. Um, and this isn't in their own movie. This is just, you know, the any, any something movie. else. Yeah. So some of them might have uh, come in theory. They might have directed first and then got into editing, but it's, un- yeah. or, or cinematography or whatever, but it's unlikely. Um, yeah, I was, uh, a lot of directors I know or know of work either came from, you know, from cinematography and a lot of people come from editing as well. Uh, especially on various things, especially sequels of movies, you sometimes find the editor becomes like the, mm. you know, the one that 
So I'm going to say cinematographer. Okay. <laughs> that was so random. Sorry. You were talking editor, editor. I know, then, but then I'm I... going to say cinematographer. No, but you just think you're both a... going to say the same one. That's... No, uh. no, I don't think it's cinematographer. The reason I say that is I don't think that many cinematographers move to directing. I think there is a percentage, but uh, I don't Jan think de it's bon, four. And that's it. That's all we need to know. <laughs> yeah, no, he's amazing. There's no question about it. But. I th- I mean, originally, the idea was you were a first AD. You worked through your Wally crew Fister. levels. You you worked through from whatever it is, production assistant, third AD, second AD, potentially, and then first AD, and then potentially you go on to, to direct. But I think Phil hit the nail on the head a little bit with editors. Um, because you said actors. It, I'm going with editor. Oops. Can I just say how much I'm very much enjoying being on this podcast? And yet again, Giles, you have scored the points. Uh, it is an editor, yes. oh, I and then followed by cinematographer. Oh. You did so beautifully, I can't so believe wonderfully it. that I. You, you must be doing this on purpose. There was such style in the way you lost there. You did, uh, you did. I, and do you know what's so interesting about this as well is that every time Phil has gone first, which is interesting because then I mind maybe that helps me. Yeah, so, you know, I'm just saying. I'm just well, saying. Well, maybe I'll go to give you a little bit time, of credit, Phil. You know, and they'll just, All right, okay. You know, thank you. Well, Phil, I'll give you a bonus round that only goes to you, so you can't lose here. You can only get a bonus point, right? <laughs> just remember how much I hate this podcast. Go on. Yeah, I, I was surprised like, oh, when you said how much you enjoyed it last week. I was like, oh, yeah, but now I remember. Now Game I remember on. Being here, looking at your little face with your statistics reflected in your glasses. You know, give me crap. What can I say? <laughs> okay so this is a bonus point you can't lose you can only get a bonus Cut. this is just win or yeah. we carry on right okay. so um within let's say one percent what percentage of directors <laughs> were also a cinematographer at least just once because you named two people Ooh. right so two people yeah. would not be a high percentage <laughs> no, but no, what percentage of directors over that 30-year period had also been a cinematographer on a movie at least just once okay i'm gonna go really low Ooh. then and go like Seven <laughs> percent. Well, never mind. <laughs> well, uh, what I can say is the editor was the editing role um, was ten percent. So ten percent of directors had edited at least once a feature film. With cinematographers, it was wow. only three point six percent, which is really low. And then, but then mm. after that, it starts to become like very, very, very few indeed. The next after that was composer, which I never would have guessed. But I think that's not so much composers becoming directors. I think it's the odd director humming a tune yeah. or, or, or doing more. I mean, actually, I don't Clint mean to be Eastwood. dismissive. I just mean it's that way. Humming a yeah. tune. Well, he, he, also, Eastwood might be a lot of this yeah. data. Whenever we can talk mm. about age of directors in a minute. And one of the problems is that Eastwood's very old and makes many films. And so you have to make a call as to yes. whether he, how much he represents the average, uh, you know, director's experience. But um, it's interesting with stunts. It's about one percent of directors have had a stunt credit and things like that and i think what's happening wow. here is that we think of exactly as phil did like i did exactly the same thing that he did thinking of those two people because they've had such clear careers in both uh, that it kind of like makes you think but actually the vast majority of those r- crew roles are quite siloed so if we go back to the question we were with before how you become a director there are mm-hmm. some directing routes that there are some crew routes that take you kind of close to directing. But to be honest, the best thing you can do is is be a director. Uh, and so it might be that you also do something else, but you can't just become a cinematographer, work your way up the camera team, you know, 10 years for each first, second AC, first AC, whatever, and then end up as a yeah. cinematographer and then wait for your turn to be called because that just doesn't happen. Mm. And so, I mean, no. it happens, I think, on um, 
What was the Johnny Depp film that Wally Fish did? My understanding was that... Um, yeah, Transcendence. Transcendence? My understanding was that uh, uh, Christopher Nolan or someone else was going to do it, and then he pulled out and they were like... Oh, so that is a situation where you can wait in the wings and be called up, but it's unbelievably rare for that to happen. And so you, if you are going to be a cinematographer, that's not, no, it doesn't prevent you from being a director, but you should on the side also have a directing career you know, underway and planned, whether that's shorts TV, as we've talked about. So it's interesting. There isn't really a job that you can do that you can naturally assume you'll end up with director if you just carry on the conveyor belt and do the job well. You have to be an active Mm. pursuit of being a director. Here's where the statistics uh, don't, uh, for my uh, money, uh, relate to the, the, the human experience because what, you know, what makes you a better director is, for me, me personally, is by having lots of strings to your bow, by having worked in all these different departments, by understanding what the difference is between mm-hmm. a focus puller and, <laughs> you know, and the swing gang and, best boy. you know, best yeah. boy and all the other, you know, cliches. <laughs> but like, it, it's, it, it, you know, I worked up. You know, I was a runner and I worked up and I worked in every single department uh, because I, you know, ultimately I was like, well, I'm going to be a director. So I want to understand and have language and shorthand and understand, you know, what the focus pull is going through when I pick a certain lens and I'm trying for him to do a certain thing. And, you know, she's on take, whatever. And I'm like, well, what's going on? It's like, well, because technically it's near Mm. impossible. Um, So... it's things like that that make you a better director, makes you a better either technically or as a storyteller. So, um, you know, so yeah, so I would say that, yes, I mean, it makes sense. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, all the people out there, you know, doing their business cards with writer director on and that's why I'm like, don't, it, 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 it's making sure you understand the tools and the other people around you. Um, and this is why I say all, all, I think all directors should, obviously we talked about edit and all directors should act. You can't, you know, you might Mm -hmm. be very good at it, but you should at least try it to understand what it's like being the other side of that camera 100%. And then, you know, uh, you're on, that'll make you a better, a human being (laughs) on a set and be a better director. So well, I totally, I totally agree because I think the thing is that what you're talking about here is actually a more important index than what I was talking about. Because what I was talking about get to be get to get the job, mm. you're talking about doing the job well, and that's much, much more and more important because obviously you need mm. both. But the, well, actually, depends what your priorities are. But you need to be hired to be able to be good. But just being hired won't mean anything if you're not good yeah. and not good to work with. So, I mean, I did do a study. Um, this is pre-pandemic, so it was around 2016. I was doing a big study into um, gender inequality in UK film, and I was hired by Directors UK. So we studied all of the British films made in the previous 10 years, and we spoke to a couple of hundred people. And, and we were trying to study um, why there were so few female directors, uh, women directors, mm. in at the, the higher ends of the film industry. And uh, one of the things we wanted to do for that was to say, okay, what is the route into directing? And then we can see, look at, measure you know, gender representation at each of these different stages. And we did do it, but at the same time, we it wasn't as neat as I perhaps thought it would be before we started, whereas I thought there'd be like a typical route into directing. And the first thing we discovered was there isn't a typical route into directing. You know, there are patterns, but even the editor as being the biggest crew role outside of acting and producing and writing, and that's still only 10%. And it, as Phil said, it may not relate to the quality of it. But what we did manage to do 
was we said, okay, well, there isn't a standard route that you can just do this, this, and this and expect to end up as a director. We did realize that most people's path to directing had three like things they had to tick off, three sort of challenges, and you could do them in, in, in different ways and different orders and stuff. Um, one, you had to get good at directing. You don't have to do them in this mm. order. Uh, number two, you have to learn how the industry functions. So both of these things that Phil's talking about. And the third thing was to get known and to some degree liked, or maybe trusted is a better word, by industry gatekeepers. And so we sort of summed that up as art system and people. So you've got to get good at directing. You've got to get good at getting films physically made. And you've got to allow people to let you, which is exactly what you were talking about, Phil. And that's probably a more important set of distinctions than yes, no, was hired, wasn't hired. Well, I think it comes down to... Like you've absolutely hit the nail on the head and obviously this has come from the facts as well is what you're like as a person you know and why should anyone put any money into you let alone your project right it's just why should they so you've got to not only impress them with you and say hey come on my journey you can be on my coattails as i make the film and you can be you know part of that but you've also they've got to be working with you for a a large amount of time like a really large amount of time that if, if if we don't like someone if we don't connect with them we're not going to invest our time as producers uh, the producers that are here in this podcast room you know we're not going to go okay i will do that i'm going to spend a year of my life if not two if not five doing that we're just not so it's it is that's a huge part of it skill is really important but if you're not a nice person people won't work with you they just there's, there's not enough time in this life to spend time doing that skill is a massive part of it but you've got to be nice and then you've got to have that people skills and then you've got to have ability on set as well you know it's it's very different mindset i think making a film it's it's a really strange place you're at you know, you're the leader of, of it, you, or certainly one of them. You know, you're the engine that drives that ship. Well, leader's and a good word. I don't think control. you have to know all the answers, you, but you need to lead. You're right, having that creative vision, but then explaining that creative vision to everyone else succinctly so they understand and are on board with your creative vision. Even if they don't agree with it, you have to persuade them to be on board with it. But I think those decisions, you're right. You know, you've got to make decisions on script cast crew locations rehearsals scheduling what else editing uh, dop what camera what lenses production design costume makeup uh what actually you're going to shoot as well on top of all that uh, let alone the design the look i'm yeah. getting stressed with you just reading the list and i'm not even a director <laughs> it's so I'm much i'm excited he's the leader wait. here <laughs> exactly um but it is, that's a lot, you know, and you've got to do that every day. And certainly in the lead up to it, you have to have a vision and you've got to stick with it. This might, and, and of course, other people can come and give you their verdicts and say, actually, look, you know, it'd be better if you shot it like this. This would be nice. How about this? Of course, you should be able to listen and you should be open to listen. I think that for me is a good skill of directing to know what you want, but then to be very open to listen to other people's opinions. Because as a director, you don't get to direct that much. But your cinematographer, shooting a lot, your grip. All the time. You make up people constantly. So uh, you've got to listen to them as well as having your own vision. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, 
Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Um, I have a question that we kind of uh, touched on before, which uh, I very much want to turn this back into a competition because it was becoming too useful. Uh, I wanted mm. to be a competition. See, Phil, you don't seem so happy now. Uh, <laughs> Phil, with, Hang on, give, Phil got a point. Phil got a bonus point for the uh, no, he below. Set. He said seven percent, but no, he said I seven. Mean, I said within one percent. He was said within one percent. Come on. Oh, that's hard, isn't that's it? Hard. Yeah, that's harsh. That's yeah, why it was a bonus point. Stephen I didn't want to make it requirement. Yeah. I wanted to make it a bonus point, but this one, okay, within five years. <laughs> so this is this is the. I'll give you a five-year yeah. range. What's the average okay. age of, of a director? So let me set the criteria. This yeah, is a say. director oh. of 20 oh, years yeah. of film. So this is 2000 to 2019 films in, in US cinema. So let's, you know, big films. Um, in just in live action. Okay, big films. In cinemas, yeah. Like, yep. like, not like the, the biggest films, but film, as in like not just blockbusters, but films that reach the cinema in the US, in North America. Okay. Live action, Fine. fiction, feature mm-hmm. films. Mm-hmm. Uh, over a 20-year period, what was the average age of the director within five years? 57. Okay. I like the confidence. Again, that's the director, director answering. Phil's gone first again. That's helped me. That's a great I have no idea. That was, that was just an illustration just of like, came in, first thing in my head, 57. Yeah, I think you're not far off because if you think of like Ridley Scott, you think of Clint Eastwood, these people who are messing the algorithms up a little bit here and all those people who are trying to make films, by the time they've got into a big cinema release like that, they've really often over 40 obviously there's quite a few who do make it younger um i think phil's not far off with 57 but i, I don't know you need to give different answers to phil otherwise it doesn't make exactly exactly but of course it's within a five-year thing so you no, know i i think it might be in the 40s so i'm gonna go with 49 uh, and it's probably a maybe a little bit higher <sighs> this, this this format keeps on giving uh it's 47 and a half <laughs> <laughs> Wow, forty-seven and a half. We just have a moment for Phil, who doesn't. Uh, Can someone check on Phil? (laughs) (laughs) See you, bye, guys. Uh, I've just got. I've got to do something. I broke Phil. Sorry, Phil's gone. He's now his screen is now empty. (laughs) (laughs) He's come back. Phil evacuated his box. (laughs) (laughs) No, he wasn't. He wasn't wasn't that sad. It's fine. He just left. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I mean, it has forty-seven. Yeah, and it's been getting older. Wow. So, like, if we look at, um, uh, like, if films in 2000, it was 45. Mm. And then by 2019, it was 50. Uh, so it is getting older. But it's interesting because it's, like, under th- under 30-year-olds only account for 2% of directors. So under 30 is the same as mm. over 75. 
it, there really is a clustering around sort of 40s and 50s. So, you, but, so both of you, your instincts were right, because I think I, when mm. I did this research uh, a few years ago, was assuming it would be a bit younger, just because, I don't know, you enter, as you're entering the industry, you're interacting with more younger people. But this is, as you mm. guys correctly deduced, like uh, the final chunk of the career path. If, the, if that is your chosen destination, feature films. And so there are people also who have stuck around for a long time as well. And like we said, Eastwood and I mean, Spielberg still making films and that sort of pulls mm. up the average as well. Um, but yeah, first films, it's, uh, it's a lot lower. Like 40 was first time directors and then 48, 49 okay. for repeat directors. So, but that makes sense because you can't That's make a second film till you've made a first film. So by, but, um, and so which uh, genres, this is, there's no points in this one. This is just for fun. Which genres do you think have the oh, oldest or young? Okay, you can have points if you want, but I'm just, yeah, you know. Why not? Um, all right. I don't I'll tell you what, this is bonus points. Phil's <laughs> <laughs> over it. Uh, Giles, you have so many of them. How can you be after more? I know, just share. I'd be more worried about yeah. keeping your clean sweep. That's what I would be more no, worried about. I just about. enjoy it. What are you, four? I just four, enjoy Phil's four, zero. Um so <laughs> what sh- which genres Let's, we can talk loosely it doesn't have to be exact ones but which genres have the mm. oldest directors and the youngest directors what do you reckon either end of the spectrum which genres of movies okay i think horror has the youngest okay why is i it? think why do you think that well i think it's easier in a sense to get a horror made and i don't mean that in any derogatory way i just feel like you know you can go to the woods and shoot a horror but you're shooting a thriller you shoot you need more locations you need more money you need more time i i feel like it's it is kind of and has been an entry level um gateway it was mine that's how i got in um doesn't mean that's the case but that's what i feel that's my instinct and i feel that westerns <laughs> are the oldest okay phil what do you reckon it might be thrillers, but I'm going with mm-hmm. westerns. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say the same. I was going to say horror. Um, can't copy. What? We had this. <laughs> you can't copy. This is how I win, Phil. This uh. is why I win. I wait for you to give the answer, and then I go the opposite. Phil gets it wrong, and then but then if you know the answer, the but then if you're right again, that's <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that would just be. Really I was talking about horror, but then like maybe what's comedy saying I, what's comedy saying phil well no that i was gonna say like comedy but then uh, okay i'll go comedy because you've taken horror and i'd probably go like historical <laughs> drama for Ooh. older seeing that you've taken western because <laughs> i probably okay. would have said stop the same talking for, stop talking phil because now you tend to talk yourself out the right answers and this time you've got the right answers but so yay <laughs> oh no! Yay, okay, yay. so okay, so oh, the youngest point, Keep the, the youngest there. is horror, but the youngest is horror, but then comedy, and horror had gone, so that was the youngest you could have picked from. So, so oh, so there. I got that right. So you get a point, point as well, Giles. Okay. But yeah, the youngest that Thanks. was left was was comedy. So point there for Phil, right. okay. and then historical films was the <laughs> oldest films or the oldest. So so if we look at horror, it was about forty three oh. years old, but for historical films, it was fifty four. So it's 11 years older. So quite a difference. This is the average. Um, wow. And so, yeah, it's, and it reflects somewhat the audience group as well. And I think you make what you, what you like. And I think also there is a, a budget thing in there because fantasy films, war films, they have older audiences, but they have bigger budgets. And so you need, there's a certain trust thing as well. Whereas comedy and horror can be amongst the cheapest films. Um, sorry, inexpensive. Well, I guess they can be cheap as well, but like they could have the lower <laughs> budgets. Uh, so yeah, I think, and I'm surprised you got the historical one. That's spot on. That's one of the genres that people forget exists. And so, uh, yes, yeah, two points. Well, there, even though well, I think both, both me and Phil have made historical. In fact, it was my second movie. Was it your second as well? Your historical Phil? First, actually. 
bizarrely. So I, that, I disproved. That the, was your first. Yeah, the first one was a adaptation of a Greek tragedy. So, <laughs> so I'm really just oh, yes, screwing the stats. Yes. Although it wasn't theatrically released in the States, so it wouldn't count. But yeah. 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 You've still got it right. Well, on that then, Phil, because that's the question we, would, we, we are getting around to answering. It's all wonderful, all this stuff. But that, that's the question then. How did we actually get our first film made? That's, that's the question we're sort of answering. So maybe you could enlighten first, us about... First feature. Yes, first feature. Right, first features, yeah, yeah. Well, my first feature uh, actually came out of my old sixth form college goes to Varian College of Manchester. Whoop, whoop. Uh, and um, they had got a pot of money from the government because they were great. They were a great um, college for drama and theatre, mm. uh, of which, you know, I was very much in and obsessed with at the time. And, um, you know, I think they were kind of struggling or curriculum-wise for materials about, you know, classic Greek texts and one of them being the Trojan women. And, you know, it's not as if, like, you know, you want kids to understand Shakespeare, you stick on Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. and Baslam and puts in some explosions and it's mega cool. It's cool. And uh, you understand it, you know. So, not that my film was any way, shape or form. <laughs> near, Didn't have any explosions but, either. You know, they, they, instead of them doing, like, you know, instead of doing a talk or, you know, training, they were like, hey, why don't we make a film? Phil was a filmmaker, you know, made a load of shorts. So, yeah, I ended up doing an adaptation of um, The Trojan Women, which I very cleverly called The Women of Troy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, which was basically a, like a filmed version of a stage play, but filmed more like drama. So it was, you know, it wasn't just like a wide shot of a play. It was really boring. It was trying to bring a bit of style and, and film to it. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of funded by, um, you know, government, I suppose. Um, and then got a release through a very kind of niche but successful um, um, educational distributor. And for many years, I was the one boring students who were that studying uh, <laughs> Greek thing because they wrote a book with it and it was like, work, so people had to watch the film and study it and all this stuff. <laughs> So, yeah, that was like my first, you know, my first kind of one. Well, that's, see, that's amazing. And I think yeah. what's interesting there is you skipped over, I feel, and because we do that, a, a really fantastic part of this, which was someone asked you to make a feature film, you know, in that sense of, look, it, it was, oh, Phil's made some shorts the way you sold it. Did you pitch for it? Did you have to sort of, you know, sell no, no, yourself I mean, in it, any way? It was, it was wonderful teachers uh robin win Zverian, and they um they just believed in me and and or slash didn't have anyone else to do it but they, they <laughs> but they came and said because they'd written a very clever like it was their script they'd written a very clever like adaptation version that worked for the stage and kind of worked to kind mm. of simplify it or you know uh, a sort of clear way of doing it and they had their own version so like well why don't we film it um and then, uh, God, this is many years ago. I don't know whether I said, well, what? let's just not just film it. Let's properly film it and do it, you know, with wide shots and close-ups and dolly moves and all this stuff. It was all, it's very kind of minimalist, still on the stage with kind of black backdrops and minimal sets and things like that. But the performances were amazing. I mean, it was um, Wumi Mazaku's uh, first mm. feature film role. And she's in like Loki and just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, 
in, and Fran- um, Francis in, Anand was your cinematographer as well. Yeah, he's gone yeah, on to make a brilliant directing career. Escape from Pretoria, Pretoria and Daniel Radcliffe. You know, so because yeah. uh, she was in the same college as me, and uh, you know, gone on won a BAFTA and all this stuff. You know, so obviously it's all based on the foundation I set. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. No, not not all. She, she was a wonderful talent, but it was a great. You know, it was, it, it was just it was a very great year of some really great drama students and a, and a really lovely script. And we just went and shot it and, and, and for the purpose of helping to educate others and it mm. worked, you know, and it was very successful, um, you know, financially and, you know, in terms of what it was for. So yeah, that was, that was the first, you know, foray into it. You know, I mean, officially I'd say my first proper feature film was the next one. The Butterfly it, Tattoo. Location. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, yeah casting and you know more money and it was mm-hmm. like you know all this stuff but yeah that officially is my was my first kind of feature length definitely do you think it helped you then get the butterfly tattoo and your directing career going was this the sort of catalyst that you felt like i'm a director now this has worked for me yeah it definitely definitely helped. i mean because it, it did work at film festivals it's kind of film that worked for film festivals so it won a few best directors and you know, and all mm. this stuff, which obviously always helps when you're trying to sell yourself when you've got not much, you haven't got much to sell yourself on. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's definitely helped because the next one was a pitch and that's probably why it feels like it was the first one because I had to pitch for it and do a deck and I went to town mm. with it and got that job. Um, and and it was a job, you know, something I got paid to do. Um, mm. So, um, so yeah, so that I guess that's why that feels like my, first officially and felt more me in terms of style and shot choice and stuff whereas you know the the winner troy was very much like what is the best what is the best way effectively to represent this thing on stage because it couldn't it couldn't move away from stagecraft too much because it was supposed to be studying a play but it was using cinematography and the tools we have to kind of try and help tell a story in a in a visual medium that just wasn't a boring wide shot that kids are going to switch off watching. So it's mm. you know it's an interesting exercise really uh, in kind of directing, I suppose. This is what I keep saying, and I said it on this, and say so it's people who like when people hold out and expect their first film to be the one that wins Sundance. You mm-hmm. know, it's like no, just make the film, and like you know, and and. It, it and wherever it comes from whatever it is just make it because then you've yeah. made it and then now you're a feature film director you know yes. and and i you know if you asked me years ago you know spielberg star wars whatever obsessed going oh your first feature film is going to be adaptation of a greek tragedy i'd go what <laughs> sold around schools <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Um, but uh but it was and then i had something to show that had actually beautiful performances in it really lovely lovely performances um, and that helped get the next thing, which was had some beautiful intimate performances in very different movie, but you know, it, it definitely helped. And, um, so you just, you just, there isn't a, there isn't a world where I would have said no to it because I didn't want to do it or didn't think, oh, it was right for me. I just did it because you 
just grab a hold of anything when someone says, can you come and make me a film? Well, I think um, also it was part of a flow, yeah. wasn't it? So like, because you'd been doing other projects like shorts and things like that, it wasn't like you felt like you just started to become a director. You may have become a feature film director, but that's a sort of a technicality or workload thing. And you may have been paid for the second one. So you didn't go pro till afterwards, but in your heart of hearts, you were on a journey and it felt contextually relevant to the next, you know, the previous one and the next one after that. And I think that's the important thing. is That's the thing that you can create in your own mind and then hopefully in the mind of minds of others is that this is a sort of I mean there's I haven't found a good way of describing it really but there's a, a power I think that independent filmmakers have when trying to get their films made and it applies here to directors as well which is the power of inevitability or the perception of inevitability mm. and making it seem like it's inevitable it doesn't mean necessarily it has to happen right now but it's like you the way you described it yourself you were like yeah you seem like the best choice you didn't have to be the best director in the world ever you had to be of all the people all the options they had the one that they were like yeah we trust him with this it makes sense it sort of flows it seems inevitable and that's what you were doing by doing other projects before and then the way that however they first approached you or and you embraced that and said hey i can make it bigger better whatever it, you know like the way you describe it yourself so i think that's the real truth is that you don't really you're not really not a director then a director there's not really a day where it happens you mm. do it mm. badly and infrequently and then better and more frequently and if you're fortunate and you yes. keep at it you find you're doing it well frequently i don't know this doesn't feel very analytical but yeah like, and and, you know. and it's that thing like the day before, you know, I know I was on set as a runner on a commercial. And then like the next week after I shot that thing, it's only shot in like three and a half days or four days, wow. like, really short amount of time. I was back on set, you know, doing VT op or running or whatever, you know, there wasn't like this whole, I'm a director now, <laughs> you know, it was just like, I've got this opportunity. Uh, I did it and then cracked on. And, um, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't just like, it was still, using the lessons and the tools learn watching other directors do their job to try and help you know what i was doing in that film like it definitely mm. informed um ho tried to hopefully made me a bit better you know i think people get bogged down in their first film has to be this big success i think yeah. it's something that a lot of filmmakers who are wanting to make their first film go no it has to do really well i um I just don't agree with that. I think your first film has to get made. I think yeah. you have to go make stuff and that's how you get work and you get better. Look, if your first film's a huge success, congratulations to you. You are one in a million. Stephen will probably give us some facts <laughs> on that. But, but you, by you doing it, you can only get better. And once you've made a feature, you go, Oh. Oh, I see now. Okay, this is what I need to think about next time. Ah, I made that mistake. And isn't it better to make a mistake in a smaller scale? Um, mm. You know, in just you and your friends going out and shooting something and hoping it does well and putting it out or not putting it out. It doesn't matter. You've learned and you've grown and you've made a feature. Um, and you do what with it what you like. And, and what about yours, Giles, though? Like, what was your first official one? Well, the first official one sort of came out before the official one i made um which is kind of weird the dare was my first drink uh official uh feature film as a director writer which i got paid for though i was making a documentary at the same time called world of darkness uh which came out i think just before the dare did uh, the dare took quite a while in post but i uh, it was such a hard 
battle to get that film made. I'm saying that one. It was harder battles on other ones. Uh, it's like I say, that 10 years of me trying to make feature films, we had so many with so many names attached, so many producers, and they just weren't right for me, us. I was not in with the right team. I was not prepared to take the lead. I was relying on other people. I was not ready. And every time I tried to make something or we got somewhere, it just fell down. I, I wasn't in control. And, and I don't mean that in any, I have to control it. I mean, I, I was hearing it third hand from someone else who's speaking to someone else. I didn't know if they were speaking to them or not. I was just taking them on their word. And as soon as you sort of separate from that, and I wrote them myself, I wrote the scripts myself. I was always bringing other writers in. And as soon as I took control of that, this is my script. No one could push me away. And that was happening. You know, he hadn't made a feature. Mm-hmm. So someone was like, yeah, well, we've got Jason Statham now. So there's no way you're directing it. You know what I mean? And it was that <laughs> you whole, tell oh my God, what am I? Well, don't, yeah, don't worry. You'll get a co-producer credit type thing. It was like, well, hang on a minute. I've been working on this for two years, five years, yeah. 10 years. So as soon as the dare came about it, because I, I did it on purpose. What we were talking about there is my horror was, it was a gateway. It was a like, I can probably make this for 10 grand in my garden. Mm. I can make this, I can maybe get 150 from an investor, which is what happened. We found an investor in the UK who went, okay, I, I believe in this. I've got 150. He actually didn't have any money, but we'll <laughs> maybe come back to that at another point. <laughs> but what we did do with my, uh, my friend and now brilliant actor and producer, Julian Kostov, is he took it to the studio, New, New Boyana Studios, who make Rambo and Rocky and uh, all the Falling Down series and whatever they're, they're wonderfully making over these action films and they read it and loved it and said we're just not making this right now so i just played them against this so-called 150 in the uk and called them up and said look if if you don't do this and you know you want to make this movie uh we're gonna have to make it in the uk because this investor here really wants to do it it was just an absolute lie but at that point you went okay well if you fly over to bulgaria um tomorrow i will see you pitch to me tell me why you think we can make your movie then let's talk so i did i had no money but i jumped on a plane the next day and just just went around this amazing studio at new Bayana studios and and talked and pitched and had everything prepared by that point in the best possible way it must have been a bit of you thinking you might be catfished yeah come to bulgaria tomorrow and i'll give you some money like that i I think we've all heard that line before but i would have taken it at that point whatever gets your film made right but i I have a question for you so um yeah so on during that period during that 10 years where you were saying that the films however you described them weren't meant to be or weren't going to happen if you do Mm. you feel that if you had acted differently just broadly, you don't need specifics, but you could have made it yeah. more likely to get made? Or do you think that what those 10 years gave you was like, no, I need to take control of the process. There was nothing I could have done with hindsight even to get those other films made. So yeah, do you think that it was how much of it was down to you and the way you were inexperienced or how much was down to you were just approaching it differently by the time you were actually getting them made? Great question. I think it's both. I think I had not enough experience so i was relying on other people's also inexperience but telling me it was experience and i also wasn't able to control anything because i didn't have the experience so i think it comes down to i hadn't even gone off and made you know i've made a load of shorts obviously and like i say bar mitzvah videos and music videos whatever i could but suddenly you're dealing with a lot of money and named actors and you are now just some kid who's you know, written this or involved in this or put his name down to direct it type thing. You are the problem. Why should anyone take you seriously? And it was only once I started making films that I realized that you have 
to be leading the charge. You have to be at the front. You have to be in all the meetings. You have to be the one making sure that no one's pulling the wool over your eyes or going behind your back or stealing your investors or speaking to other people or trying to get rid of you because that's what happened. Whether they're meant to or not, that is what happened. And I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't the producer director I am today. I, I love that. I lo- but that takes time. I love the idea that you, uh, when someone is the director of an indie film, everyone's telling them, you're the problem. You are the problem. You are the problem. And one day you have to stand <laughs> up for yourself and go, I am the solution. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's it. Well, that's that's the it. difference. I mean, you laugh, but I've had, I've had that as well. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, oh, you know, you've not done enough. So we can't mm. get that cast member. And like, I, I, I had it on a few things that didn't, happen or what happening earlier on mm. yeah it, actually in between after doing um Butterfighter 2 which felt like my first proper thing and then you know after that in that kind of years of development hell of like oh he's done this Ugh, nice movie yeah. let's do other things I was always the problem and I just uh you know to everyone else you know that it's like well it well if you had done more films or if you had done more won more awards or if it released better then we could have got Paul Bettany or <laughs> I don't know why I popped it there. Or you know, whoever yeah. Phil, how and dare then, you be you? Know, you. For, how dare you do, have done yes, what you've but, done? But you but are ruining is, like, everything. Because you <laughs> that ten years you're talking about of something of like mm. the rejections and the failures and the, the mm. kind of things that didn't happen, I hardened you, you know. And and also with experience you go, Auntie, yeah. do you know what? This isn't me actually it's actually because you don't have the connection to that person to that thing or you don't have the money to put down for them to take it as a serious offer or you yes. don't even know <laughs> like you know how to do this that and the other and it, yeah. and it and it just you and you become you become and it was really frustrating for a time that you become the scapegoat of something to the point mm. where on the kind of last time it was happening i remember i could put the phone on conference call or something and I speak to my wife or then girlfriend, you know. Um, um, Who you met? Who did you meet her on one of your films? On Butterfighter 2. And, hey. um, you know, but um, it was, uh, I was like, oh, why are they always, I feel like I'm the problem and maybe, if, you know, what can I do to be better or not, you know. And you stop having that and you go, wait, hang on. And I used mm. to, and I, and the, the, I remember the moment I started to get really annoyed about it. And I was like, okay, if you're about to say it, this is my problem, then I'm done, okay? Because mm. this is not what the problem is, right? Of yes. course, if you had Ridley Scott, you could get whoever and get whoever. Same yeah. with distributors of sales engines. You're going, yeah. ah, you know, just come back to us when you've got an A-lister. You're like, dude, <laughs> yeah. I've got an A-lister. I'm not calling you. Well, that's the, <laughs> calling, that, that's the big calling, thing, isn't it? Like, I'm calling it, the one three tiers above you, mate. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, going, I'm, going, I'm, going, I'm calling up A24 right now and I'm not talking to you, you know? So like, go away, like stop it. Um, yes. and, and but oh, that only comes with experience they're saying i can't <laughs> fund this with you and what you need to hear is i can't fund this with you as in yes. you're the problem yeah. because this is the film mm-hmm. and not only is the and yeah, this is yeah. the film and phil you're saying this is the film because i'm the best person for the job and giles you're saying this i'm in the, i'm the best person for the job because i control this film either way both take you to the same mm-hmm. route which is i'm making this film yeah. are you helping me do this mm-hmm. rather than how is this film getting yeah. made with yes. or without me that is the exact mindset you need to have and also hello producer you chose me <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and as, yeah. But as soon as you get that in your mind it changes everything i was so mm. much in or's the wrong word i was so much in uh, debt to these people you know who were saying they're doing stuff i was so afraid that if i said something i would be booted out and i mm. suppose that's what i mean by the control in terms of 
if I write this myself, it's my script. And the only thing they can do is still make my project, but I now not directing, but it's still my script. So I'm going to evolve in some way. And it was just that moment where you went, no, hang on a minute. This is, wh- why am I the issue? <laughs> this is you. You can't do it yourself. Hang and on. again, when you're first starting out, why should anyone give you money? It was my phrase. Why should anyone believe in you? So all your bigger producers, all your Netflixes and your Amazons and your Skies and your studios, why are they going to give you money? So of course you're going to attract the people who are the wannabes, the people who are trying to make stuff. Or it's the easiest thing to put on a business card is producer. You know, anyone can do it. And of course you're going to be burnt and of course you're going to be hurt. And I had 10 years of that and it was absolutely heartbreaking, you know, crying into your bed and just going, what have I done? Why am I doing this to myself? This is terrible. No career, feeling of failure. And you've just got to fight before that happens. I spent too long in other people's shadows. And that's what I'm saying to our listeners now. Don't do that. This is yours. Take control as much as you can without being a bully, without being a dick, just saying no. What have you got? If you haven't got anything, I'm moving on and be prepared to be brave to move on. It's not working. Move on. It's yours. Don't wait for anyone else to make your film. I'm making this film. Are you going to join me? Are you going to help me? Like that's the framing you need. And I think that it's very easy to be gaslit by people who are more experienced, more confident, Mm. brash or whatever it might be. And they might be, I'm not even saying they're right or wrong. I'm saying it's irrelevant because it's your film. And, and so they might, and also they're usually right. Everything they're saying is usually factually correct. If you have a bigger star, if you have a different director, if you get Ridley Scott, as Phil said, like those things are facts. That doesn't mean you have to then base your decision-making process on that because they haven't got your Mm. interests at heart. And I think that's one of the number one things is that they have their own interests at heart which is fine but don't they might they're pretending Mm. otherwise because your best interest is in being attached to that project and getting it made even if it's 10 years later your best interest is not in helping them get their film made with somebody else and so i think it's okay to be selfish with this one because you don't owe anyone anything and it's your project so hold on to that Mm -hmm. and have that self-confidence that is perhaps unearned at that point because you haven't done a thousand films but is something that you will build over your career and ultimately it's your film Mm -hmm. you're i'm making this film do you want to help me can you help me are you you know please prove that you can help me not you can't be replaced on this film it's just not that's not this film Mm -hmm. yep i love it i love that what about you Stephen? how did you get your first sort of features how we involved in that way i was doing lots of shorts and i was also uh quite i was doing bits of teaching but i also like helping i like i mean have a very poor attention span so i like helping people with projects (laughs) because it involves cups of tea and telling them Mm. oh that sounds bad or oh you know what i would do and then i leave and then i come back a week later and they say oh thank you Stephen, you really helped and i'm like i really didn't um and so (laughs) i was doing a lot of that which was uh, uh, my memory of it being utterly enjoyable just you know helping people meeting people and i'm inspired by filmmakers and i'm inspired by people trying to do things and so that was kind of fun and um yeah one of them just sort of grew and grew and grew and they sort of asked me to come board in a bigger and bigger sense and so i kind of it wasn't so much unintentional but it was not it wasn't i didn't have like i must make a feature i must produce something and i must do it deliberately it was sort of it i still chose to do it but it it sort of happened bit by bit i think i was initially advising them because they'd already shot a load of stuff and it grew and then there were reshoots and then one spawned another film and then we did that one and the thing is that i got to a point where i didn't it's not that i didn't want to produce but i think that i thought that producing features would be where i wanted to go and once i got there i'd be really happy and actually the reverse happened which is that i produced some features and i was like well i can 
and I could certainly have done it better. And I'll, you know, there's many, it wasn't that I nailed it, but more just that I had done it and I could see a path of improving over, you know, years and decades, but it didn't give me what I wanted. And it, I, I also struggled with something that I wouldn't struggle with now, but which was about ethically fundraising. Because as far as I could see, the films just wouldn't make money, or at least mm. had a very low chance of it. And I found it very difficult to work out how I could ethically go to a filmmaker, an investor and say, give me your money. Now I have much better answers, and not really because of my data stuff, but just because I've come to understand that, yeah, sure, films are just as unlikely to make money as I always thought. But people don't put money in for primary money, for money reasons, or not purely money reasons. You know, they're putting it on for a host of reasons. And if someone is genuinely trying to turn one pound into two, they don't come to film. Uh, whereas if they want to have a safer investment, but also have some fun or interest or support the art or the person, then you can deliver on that 100%. You know, the return on investment for giving money to the opera is zero. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. golf, zero. Uh, getting a boat, <laughs> zero. You know, like uh, having film, wow, that's amazing. They want to get involved. They want to see how it works. They want to come to the festival. They want to be on set. Plus, the, maybe they'll get some money back. And it'll look great. Mm-hmm. And so now many years later i've sort of overcome that but at the time i was like well this isn't what i want to do and this isn't a way i feel i can be me um and i was still making shorts and i'd worked out a route of making shorts professionally because they turned into viral videos for campaigns and charities and we did lots of stuff mm. with friends of the earth and, and even there we were working with like names we worked with ian mckellen and lily james yes. and you know we got yeah. to work with stephen fry and you know people that were doing interesting things so i kind of ended up being more of a kind of filmmaker than a producer and features uh were less interesting for me to make but i was still interested in the people and the role and that's where my kind of career split where i carried on with my production company which i um set up and co-run with uh edward dark and i was the creative director for a long time and so i'd write the projects and produce bits of them until we had other producers in-house and so one half of my life was professionally making short films again I, I, I guess which turned into adverts and things and then i still wanted to be in the film industry which is when i started sharing my data research and stuff and so i kind of previously thought that everything had to come from producing features and then i realized i just could take the two bits i liked mm-hmm. producing short content creating content and then also being around filmmakers helping filmmakers and so sometimes that's one of the reasons, you know, we talked last time about people making second films. It's not a failure not to make a second film because yeah. you might learn in the process of doing that. Well, actually, there are other places I can get what I want. And for me, I learned that I didn't need to do the role as I'd previously thought about it. I could split it up and get get my jollies from two different places that added up to a whole and added up to what I wanted it to be. And that's so important to know, listen, this this business is very hard. It's exactly what this... Uh, segment of the podcast is called the business of film and it is so hard it is difficult you have to know your stuff you can't swim through it you, you just can't guess you can't well you can but you certainly need to know your facts figures you have to come in your paperwork you have to get lawyers you have to get accountants you, you need to know what you're doing and that takes time and effort and concentration but you can do it but if you get there and you go hang on no i prefer this side of it that is totally fine and as steven says that is not a failure that is a success because you found something you want to do not everyone can be in front of the camera not everyone can be directing you know there is many other roles in the filmmaking world you can do um and you've just got to find the thing that makes you happy so yes Stephen, most i was right because most directors then just become cinematographers yeah. so that's why i did that answer earlier because they think oh directors too much answer just give me a camera and a coffee and i'll be absolutely fine it didn't matter which order they did the jobs in 
It's but no, true. Going back to what you were saying, Charles, it is I, my theory of filmmaking is that every single element needs to be loved by someone. But no, not it's not all going to be loved by the same person. That's just not possible. Uh, and when you discover that you don't love something, find someone who does, because everything deserves to be loved, even if it's making the cup of tea or it's you know moving equipment. Mm. Somebody is for their where they are in their life, maybe not forever, but they they oh I can't believe I get to do this. And so yeah, and I, when I realized I didn't love producing, I was like, all right, I'm out. That's what, incidentally that's my um, colloquial non data evidence theory of why there are so many bad horror films because people make horror films who don't like horror films and uh you know i think you should sure. make what you love i made one don't like horror films <laughs> do you love horror films no i don't is your no. film a good horror film no it's a good no. horror film <laughs> i haven't seen it, it. i don't know horror film. <laughs> okay it's in front of me here i've got it as my uh, placeholder for my well, mic i here. would say it's a good psychological thriller but it's not a horror film no look i say like not everyone can like films like there is a there is an audience that discovers that film every year that's the great thing mm. about making a, a, a horror film or you know yeah. inverted commas and with someone that is so iconic to horror that people discover it every year and you get very mm. nice tweets about it and uh and that's where you figure out where it's showing. Like, oh, where have you seen it? Yeah. Legally, uh, <laughs> I think I think that with all with all genres, I don't think it's just with horror. See, I really like horror. I never liked horror. I was like, I hated it as a kid. It was like, oh god, no, I'm scared. But as soon as I was in them as an actor and then started making them i fell in love massively and deeply but i'm the same with all genres i i, I like all filmmaking i like all films i am that kind of a person i don't have a specific genre i like more than any other and i've been lucky enough to have made quite a few genres in my time if not nearly all of them religious one i haven't done yet um but i think i think a western i'm doing a western soon though hopefully um but i think you can do i don't think you need to be Abs- this is sci-fi is my only one i'm sticking to that i think that's something else maybe we'll talk about in another um, i was gonna say i have these. i have data on this but we have no time so next week maybe or next yeah. month maybe <laughs> but let's take month. some reader ne- questions as well like if any or listener questions yes. if anyone's got anything for the three of us or anyone wants anything uh you know looked at the data and then we can chat about it we really do want to hear what you guys are pondering and we've had some great questions come in so keep them coming yeah keep them coming because we can we can bounce off that uh the filmmakers podcast at gmail.com or on our Twitter, Filmmakers Pod, or Instagram, thefilmmakerspodcast.com. Um, do we have another little fact before we go? That a little quiz. Is there another one, oh, Stephen? That we, just that we when I thought I was safe. I mean, I was <laughs> Phil. I was being nice. I wasn't. <laughs> Phil, you've doing well. You're I wasn't doing going to. Well, he's Bless on. You. Is it five I don't two? Need your pandering or your, you know. Um, uh, Phil, I think, I think you do. Three one or four one? I don't know. I think you do. I think it's four two. But um, yeah, Phil, you you might need his pandering. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> you can have two points. Uh, okay, give this me one second. This is a double pointer. You get this right, Phil. All right. Okay. Here we go. This is one that I Here think you can probably figure out. Okay. So I looked at uh, this is over a sort of similar time period. Which is, I was looking at a, over a long time period. How many films have more than one director? Now, this is all films made, not just so it's like 270,000 yeah. films. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, this stat, but I, the actual question is a follow-up, right? Okay. Uh, I mean, because the thing is, this has changed over time. So I could ask you, the time series I did was from 1949 to 2019, something like that. So I'm not going to ask you that because that would be too much of a sort of stick in the air. But that was about... <laughs> about six <laughs> percent of, of films have more than one director now the reason is that there's a slight actually no i won't explain too much until later on because it'd be okay yeah. so here's yeah. my actual question my actual question is okay so we're looking at uh, uh, feature films that have more than one director listed which genres have the most and the fewest number of more than one director listed 
Which genres? Most likely, least likely to have more right. than one director listed. And okay. Either of you can go first this. because you seem to, Phil, you seem to complain whether you get to go first or second. First so, or second is true. <laughs> maybe, maybe Phil can choose whether he goes first or second. Um, yeah Hmm, interesting i think okay just to throw out thoughts thoughts okay so horrors often two people do it together do you mean they jump in and do it together is a general rule of that i found that people have made that sci-fi's potentially could be the same again um hmm by the way Stephen, is there a generic term called drama in this there is and and so what we're using is imdb's um uh, uh, classification, which means that I think something like 60% of all films are listed as a drama. So actually drama becomes, yeah. as you correctly sort of supposed here, actually not very interesting because it's a, it's a sort of a mirror for the whole industry. Yeah. It's not specific yeah. enough. But it, this is all genres and all types of film, feature films that were made and listed on IMDb, I think, and a few other sites as well. What about IMDb's documentary films? film? Uh, no, I don't think documentaries are in there. Oh, so it's all narrative-based genre. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd probably say I'm going to be most likely comedy and least likely historical drama. <laughs> I did well on that one last time. That's uh, not always the answer to one... every question. No, that no. is the answer to life. It is everything. <laughs> More comedy, less historical. No. Uh... I'm going with... Or, no, Either, oh. wait have you not have you not finished phil sorry no i, I was I thinking about changing historical drama but i did that before and i screwed it so you're um, trying to read steven's face right now aren't you and no no um, I'm, not, I'm not i'm not looking because he's not very good at i can't i'm a good, I poker, player. I'm a good poker player i can do the math on <laughs> the face good, good. <laughs> oh shut up i'm gonna go with um it's either horror or sci-fi i feel uh i don't know why i just that's in my gut so i'm <sighs> I'm going to go, I think it's horror, but I'm going to go with sci-fi just because I think it might be interesting. And I think the least likely is is religious one. Is that one of your? Uh, it's not, no. Okay. All right. Then, then that will be thrillers. Well, you're both wrong on all fronts. And what? neither of you have mentioned either genre. I think at any point in today's podcast. Well, how about, yeah, maybe let me explain the biopics. Genres. Biopics. Sorry. No, no, let me explain <laughs> the reason and then I'll give you another guess, but no points mm. for obvious reasons. Mm. So, um, the part of the reason that there is, there are fewer directors that are more films with more than one director is because the Directors Guild of America says that actually you, says that uh, uh, they can only have one director in very rare situations when, the, when someone's career, like the Farrelly brothers or the Cohen brothers or whatever, have always done it together, they make exceptions. But I seem to remember that, um, is it Frank Miller had to leave the, uh, was it Rodriguez had to leave for Sin City because they wanted two directors and they wouldn't they were refused so it's not it's very rare the DGA allow it now this isn't just films approved by the DGA because this is all films made but the, that has a, an effect on the industry where the director is seen as a singular role but so to, as a clue for a pointless answer as in no points can be awarded the DGA the DGA doesn't control <laughs> all types of films there is one genre ah, they don't control okay. and that's the one with the highest percentage of of multiple of films with more than one director and it's not documentary it's an imdb genre and there is one genre that the directors guild of america are not in charge action no it can't be they're in charge of action but we didn't say action and action is probably up there 
You'll kick yourself. This is interesting. See, we will. Wait, are we let, just forgetting genres? There's only 20 genres on IMDb and one documentary and it's not included in this. So there's only 19 left. I promise you it's not a trick question. It's not like short films or something. People are probably screaming at the podcast. Is it a film that is... Oh, animation. 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 So animation have their own audience. assuming live action. No, but but I didn't say that. But yeah, it's interesting because... I know, I know. Because you're sneaky. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right, fair enough. Um, I'll take that. You nearly said it, Phil, but you said narrative. And I went... I know, I did too. I was listening out for that. I was hoping you wouldn't say that because I'd have to correct you. But yeah, over 20% of of, uh, animated films have more than one director. And obviously we can't... And so it's interesting to say, we don't know whether if the DGA rules weren't there, suddenly more people would do it or not. But because directing directing an animation has a completely different life cycle to Mm. a sort of shoot-based film, if you want to call it that, no matter what the other genre is, because you're, you know, in pre-production filming for a relatively short period of time, considering your length on the whole project, and then in post, whereas an animation, you're almost always making all of it, in a sense, and you can jump things out Mm. and re-edit. And so, yeah, about a fifth, over a fifth of um, animations have more than one director, and you think about the Lego movie and stuff like that. Um, But the other end of the spectrum was romance, which was just 5%. And so romance films, romantic films, romantic films are least likely to have two directors, which seems funny because like it's about two people connecting most romances, but maybe it's about vision or like maybe it is about and horror was up there, by the way, horror was the of all the non-animated films that was was 10% Mm -hmm. likely to have. So, but I think that also skews towards indie as well, because I think many more horror films are independent films. So they're not under the DGA's rules. So it's kind of, there's a few factors going on there, but it is generally a solitary job where you're constantly talking to people uh, because it is mostly in your own head and you and if you're going to go towards being a, a director of union films especially in america you do have to consider that you are going to be by yourself and you're going to be lonely a lot with thousands of people asking you questions all the time mm-hmm. again getting yeah, excited thankfully. and me, me terrified <laughs> <laughs> fascinating this has been amazing again i've really really enjoyed this um we'll be back again in a month's time if not just before or after. So as Stephen said, get your questions in, whatever you want us to answer, facts, figures, find out, and you want us to know or have this fun sort of uh, conversation, then please do. Link is in the show notes to that. And do go check out uh, Stephen's website as well, stephenfollows.com. Yeah. I have, uh, and Stephen and .org, .xyz. There's another guy called Stephen Follows who just came around afterwards and I feel sorry for him. Um, but yeah, oh. I know. All right, you bought them all. Good for you. <laughs> You've got them all. You've got them all. Uh, links, I didn't want links to all that. You know, exactly, exactly. There are all the links to that will be in the show notes, but do go check it out. It is fantastic. It will help you as a filmmaker. It's really, really interesting to know. Right, there we go. Um, yeah, go make your films, people. I hope you've learned something from this. I hope you felt inspired in any way. And if nothing else, that Phil lost again in the quiz that is now becoming an official quiz. So there is that to look forward to. You only got me on this time. one so I could be the full guy. I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy with my role. I'm happy. You don't seem happy. <laughs> I'll just point out the disclaimer. No. <laughs> I literally don't read anything. And I think Giles wins because he does read everything. Just put it, you know, just, just putting it out there. 
you, you can you can speculate all you like, Phil. Um, or <laughs> also, you Phil, just, you don't hey, have to convince uh, us you're not reading it. We know. <laughs> yeah, we do know you're reading it. <laughs> you just so... forgot. <laughs> Touche, my friend. To be fair, you are on set at the moment. You're in the middle of making, you know, you're making something. So it's all good. Right. Okay. We will see you uh, next Tuesday. As always, you can go out there and make your films. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, what is it, Phil? Is there duty it's to your duty? To send Duty. the elevator back down. Send it back down to everyone else. Yeah. Or duty and lift. Yes. It's your duty to send the lift back down. Lift Ping. back down. To send the dumbwaiter back down. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Stephen Follis, thank you. Thank you so much, guys. It's been so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone. <laughs> See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Bye.